Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. You know, if you could possibly stand it, I would happily sit somewhere with you and talk for, like, an unlimited number of hours about the many sub-regional cuisines of the South. We could be here a week before we even get to barbecue. Or we could talk about the mix of cuisines that make up the food of the Southwest. Or we can go on and on about the chefs of the Hawaii regional cuisine movement of the 90s, and so on and so forth. But I have to say, when we get to the Midwest, I'd probably sit there for a minute and then go, wait, what is Midwestern food? And I can't really even tell you why that question seems so hard to answer. Maybe it's because Midwesterners are famously not that interested in patting themselves on the back. And maybe it's because some people ignorantly dismiss the region as flyover country. But the region that gave us the deep dish pizza, the gooey butter cake, and popularized the hot dog and the hamburger deserves to get its flowers for making a mark on American cuisine. So, today, that's what we're going to do. Later on in the episode, we'll visit with hamburger scholar George Motes at his new restaurant to talk about the Midwestern smash burger. And we're going to start with Paul Fairbach, chef of the great Chicago restaurant Big Jones and author of the new book, Midwestern Food. Hey, Paul, it's great to see you. Hey, Francis. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you, too. I'm excited. You know, I, my heart, you know, part of my heart definitely belongs to the Midwest. Um, and, you know, sure, like everywhere, it's hard to put a definition around what Midwestern food is. So I certainly appreciate that you sure give it a shot. Um, and like every cuisine, right, the food is influenced by the land, the climate, and of course, the people who came to that place. But you have this really fascinating, like particular point you make which is that the Midwest developed agriculturally and industrially at the same time. And that really helps to tell the story of Midwestern food. What do you mean by that? Well, it's an interesting dichotomy. And one of the hardest things that was, it was one of the hardest things for me to lace together throughout the narrative of the book. And that, Mm. you know, you had families like my dad's side of the family, for instance, which, you know, came straight from Germany to a small rural area in southern Indiana and just farmed for five generations before my dad left and became a school teacher and then had us and Mm -hmm. we grew up off the farm. Um, But, you know, they were home cooking, home gardening. That was what they ate. They never ate anything that they didn't raise themselves or share or hunt in the woods, you know, that sort of thing. And then you have my mom's side of the family, which, you know, they were Appalachian flight to Detroit, Michigan back in the 50s and were... Uh, part of the urban experience, but the urban experience in the mid- in the Midwest goes all the way back to the 19th century, and so you had the cities filling up with immigrants from Europe who were having to shop in urban markets and eat what they could find in the city, and the food system was industrializing. Things like hamburger, which was formerly a luxury, became. Uh, a, a, a food of the masses because industrialization made it cheap. And that was concurrently because there was all of this cattle ranching going on um, all over the Midwest as people uh, developed farms. So there were farms developing and there was industry developing and they sort of worked together to create the modern American food system. 
Yeah, that's so interesting too. And and yeah, I don't want to get down this rabbit hole, but you know, I think when you say to the Midwest to to people, like most generally, they would imagine oh, like farmland. They would imagine this sort of like you know the breadbasket of the country and all that stuff. But you you have a little side point, which is like the Midwest is actually sort of the start of fast food nation. Yeah, and McDonald's famously started in California. Sure, yeah, which was the original road food state, I guess. Um, with American car culture, but it was purchased by Ray Kroc in the 1950s, who then opened his pilot, you know, his proof of the concept store in Des Plaines, Illinois, and and grew it from here. And so, um, and not just McDonald's, but uh, White Castle, Pizza Hut, Wendy's, you could go on and on and on the list of chains that started here in the Midwest, which isn't necessarily a point that we should be proud of. Um, but at the same time, it's been very influential in the way America feeds itself. Yeah. And it speaks to this idea too of, you know, it, 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 when you're talking about Midwestern food, you have to think about the sort of the urban and suburban experience as much as you think of the rural. Correct. Um, and so, you know, this book has so much of this history, but also so many recipes and, you had a rule too when you were sort of thinking of what recipes belong. Because of course, like the Midwest, like anywhere in America, is full of growing, uh, increasingly diverse immigrant communities. So, like, what counts as Midwestern food? And you, you had a three generation rule. Like, a dish had to sort of be around for three generations for inclusion in this book. Anyway, why that time period? What what did that mean to you? Well, that meant to me that it had been, you know, a food comes with uh, immigrants. And then, you know, you have the immigrant generation or the first generation, or I think they're mm-hmm. called, that's, that's, that's the, the immigrant generation settles and, and they're trying to continue their culture as much as they can and continuing to eat the same foods. And then they have kids, the first sure, generation, yeah. they're cooking those foods that they grew up with still and trying to maintain that culture in through the first generation and showing their kids, uh, it's really just what they know how to do from their household economy, you know, cooking the same dish, dishes they've cooked for generations, assuming they can find ingredients or, you know, acceptable ingredients to, to do it. But from mm-hmm. there, you know, after the first generation, you know, and say the, the, the generation that immigrated starts to die off is the, is the second generation, you know, their grandkids, are they still eating and cooking these dishes? That, to me, indicates that it's now thoroughly embedded in the Midwestern culture um, beyond the immigrant generation. Mm-hmm. And then alternatively, you have things like pizza, which evolved here in very unique ways. So those could be included, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, pizza's only been around since in most of the Midwest since the 50s or the late 40s at the earliest. But pizza, as you find it in the Midwest, whether it's Detroit or Chicago or St. Louis, doesn't exist in any of that form at all in Italy. So that's considered right. Midwestern as well because it was a novel evolution here. Right, 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 right. Okay, so let's go. I mean, I got to say, when I was going through the book, you know, I I lived for a, 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 you know, a number of years in Michigan. Um, you know, I felt like, yeah, I've got a pretty good handle of what the food was like, you know, when I was living there. But it was funny because I was going through this book and page after page, I was like, oh, yeah, that's an iconic American dish. That's an iconic American dish. That's an iconic American dish. And to think of them as being specifically Midwestern, um, it, it was just it, it was just amazing to see, oh, there are so many iconic American dishes that do originate in the Midwest or, or have a particular place there. So I want to start with uh, Cincinnati chili 
because it's unlike any other chili maybe in the world. It's specific to Cincinnati. It's served on spaghetti. Like, what's the deal here? Well, Cincinnati chili's maybe my favorite metaphor for Midwestern cuisine because it's it's often derided, it's maligned, it's misunderstood, and uh, it's really is it really a, is it really a pasta sauce? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think it matters. It, it, it's it's so funny the way people will take a name like chili or take a label and 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 apply it and then just say, well, this is bad. But Cincinnati chili is one of the oldest examples we have of fusion cooking. So you have hmm. this this uh, immigrant from the Balkan Peninsula, um, Tom Karajif, who comes over and he stops by Coney Island and does spends a little bit of time in New York and then goes and settles in Cincinnati. I think he spent a little bit of time in Detroit also. But he decides that he wants to open a chili parlor because that was, you know, chili during the 1920s. And, you know, we're around 19, 1919, 1920 now when he arrives in Cincinnati. Chili is kind of it's sort of the Nashville hot chicken of the day. It's a really popular, <laughs> trendy dish. And oh, interesting. Okay. So he wants. So he wants to open a chili parlor, and but he doesn't really have a reference point for it. He does have this meat stew that he grew up with that they make with lamb in in Serbia. So and it's got these the spice profile that's you know like allspice, cinnamon. Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, red pepper in there, like Calabrian chili, uh, those types of things. And they would serve this with orzo. They would serve it with pasta back in the homeland. Well, you can't can't mm-hmm. find orzo in Cincinnati in 1920. And you also, lamb was not particularly easy to come by either, but you have this newly available, very inexpensive ground beef. And so he takes this recipe that his family's had for, you know, maybe a thousand years that his family's been cooking this dish or longer. And he prepares it and puts a little cumin in there to to, to put a little bit of the chili flavor on it. And he calls it chili <laughs> because, you know, maybe as a marketing gambit, um, and he sure. serves it on, on spaghetti because that's what he could find. And, you know, if you let go of any and all preconceptions about what chili should be, you know, be, if you want to be a hardcore Texan, you know, and just let go of that idea of chili being, you know, only chilies and meat, maybe some onions, and, and sort of think about it as a fusion dish and open up your mind to it and have it and go to Cincinnati and eat around town. The chili's fantastic. And it's a, a it's a real bargain. I mean, I don't think I paid more than in 2022. The last time I did a a, a chili tour of the city, I don't think I paid more than twelve bucks, including tip, for a sit down lunch at any of these chili parlors around town. Yeah. So it's a great bargain. It's it's pretty nutritious, and uh, they have this chili culture there. There's 350 or so chili parlors around town. And if you're in downtown Cincinnati, you can't find a Chipotle or a Jimmy John's. You got to have chili because that's what's that's what's there. <laughs> so they have this really vibrant local food economy that's kind of, at least for for the working class or for the working man, it's 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 centered on chili. And you know the national chains have to kind of stand by. Oh, I love that. It's it's really cool. That's Paul Fairbach, author of Midwestern Food. More with him in a minute, and then it's hamburger scholar George Motes. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. 
Instead, get seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. That's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for Curious Cooks and Eaters. We're talking today about the glories of Midwestern cuisine, so let's get back to it with chef and author Paul Fairbach. In my mind, when I hear brats, I think of Wisconsin. I'm a Packers fan. Uh, I know our show is based in Minnesota. I'm sorry to everyone. Uh, but you have this, not even quite a recipe, but a technique for cooking beer brats. Tell us about that. It sounds incredible. Yeah, it was just how my dad would cook them growing up. And dad didn't cook very often. He worked a lot. I mean, I kind of got my insane work ethic from him. If he was awake, he was working. But occasionally he would make bratwurst and he learned it from his dad and, and so forth. Is that he would just take the bratwurst. And I think it's essential to have in my recipe testing. We found out that you can't just go and buy, you know, random label bratwurst at the grocery store to do this. You've got to get fresh bratwurst from a, a good local butcher, which can be mm. a grocery. You know, some grocery stores have good butchers in them. Well, what makes a good bratwurst to you? Uh, to me, a good bratwurst is all pork, um, but that's what okay. I grew up with. Germans mix their meat. That's one of, if you ever see the words German style on, on a charcuterie product or a cured meat product, it usually means it's mixed meats. Oh, Italian products would almost always be all pork, um, and German products would almost always be mixed meats. Oh, interesting. So, okay, great. Yeah, so to me, it's all pork because that's what I grew up with, but it might be a mixture of pork and beef. It's pretty coarsely chopped. Um, it's not an emulsified sausage, but you will find people in the Midwest who call, you know, emulsified sausages bratwurst also. But mm-hmm. bratwurst in Old German basically means sausage you make with roasting meat. So it's mm. by roasting meat, they're implying a higher quality of meat. Like so, a loin or something like that. Yeah, so, you know, it's not you know the what we know today as hot dogs or bologna where you kind of throw all the odd bits in there it's mm-hmm. you know you make it from pork shoulder you make it from the loin uh in old germany typically it was common to use the loin in combination with the belly like in in certain ratios mm. so you have your lean and your fat and it's got to be have, have a natural casing because it's got to have that snap um and the casing's got to be intact to make this particular preparation of bratwurst because it holds that the juice inside while he does this preparation. So you take, you know, eight bratwurst um, or, you know, a couple of pounds and put them in a big iron skillet. And I want to say ours was about 10 inches. And that's the size we we tested them with in, in this book. But you can use 12 inches, eight inches, whatever, and just, just cover them with beer. And it's got to be a, a, a pretty pale lager. You don't want a lot of hop flavor. Um, you just want to be able to focus on the malt flavor because that's what's going to caramelize. Mm-hmm, and you just start mm-hmm. cooking this beer down, you know, turning it up to, you know, 
high heat to start, but then as it starts cooking down, you gradually reduce the temperature. Oh, cool. Okay. Eventually to about medium, medium low. And so as this beer evaporates, you're just constantly turning the sausages so they cook evenly. That's really important so they don't burst. So, you know, every 30 to 45 seconds, turning the sausages, letting it continue to cook down. And eventually that beer will cook down into a syrup, like the malt in the beer will cook down into a syrup and start to caramelize and just constantly turning the sausage in this caramelizing beer mixture. It almost candies on the outside and eventually chars, and you should be careful and never leave your pan when you're doing this or or you'll burn your house down. But just stay with it. (laughs) And when you get the color you want, you know, turn, turn off the heat. And you've got these sausages that are crusty, caramelized. You can char them if you Glazed want. Glazed in this beer. Yeah, That's and so they cool. will squirt juice across the room if you eat them <laughs> right out of the skillet. So you have to kind of let them rest for you know maybe ten minutes before you eat them. And they're just—it's just the best way that I've ever had sausage cooked in my life. That's so cool. I love that. Um, I want to talk to you about barbecue because obviously, you know, the South is considered, especially by Southerners, the home of barbecue. Right. And, you know, all the conversation about regional Southern styles of barbecue, you know, is it North Carolina pulled pork? Is it Texas brisket? You know, da, 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 da. Tell us what makes for a Midwestern style of barbecue. Sure. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't dispute that barbecue came from the South. I don't think that that's a a question. Sure. Um, But there's a couple of, you know, the white barbecue tradition in the Midwest more or less died off in the early 20th century. Um, but you did have in successive waves of the Great Migration, you had a lot of black Southerners come and they brought, you know, their low and slow cooking methods for meat with them that, you know, started in the southeast, mostly with whole animals. But by the time you get to, you know, the development of Memphis style and Kansas City style barbecue, once again, that Midwestern meat processing industry is really growing by leaps and bounds. And you have packers in Chicago and Kansas City and St. Louis that are breaking up animals and selling animal parts in big boxes. You know, the concept of boxed meat is born. And uh, so you start to have specialized cuts of meat in barbecue around the turn of the 20th century. And that takes place in both Memphis and, and Kansas City. Um, once you want these Southern blacks come to, you know, cities like Chicago, um, they continue barbecuing whatever they can get their hands on, cooking them over coals. And, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, St. Louis butchers start uh, cutting the tips, the gelatinous tips off of racks of spare ribs in order to square it. So it looked almost like a, a rack of baby back ribs. So you have this rectangular rack and that became known as the St. Louis cut. That's where it's from. And it's now the national standard for what a spare rib is. Oh, so that's you so have, interesting. So you have the spare ribs. One are definitely a Midwestern thing, but number two, you have these tips that are left over. And originally, the Packers would just put them in barrels and set them out for the for the trash, you know, for the garbage people to take away. Hmm. And uh, around 1950, uh, with Lem's Barbecue on the South Side of Chicago, they just started going out and grabbing these rib tips and figured out how to cook them. And you know, they developed their own kind of sauce in Chicago style barbecue, the sauce is very intimately related to Memphis. I-69 and the Illinois Central Railroad have a, there's a big connection between Chicago and the Delta region culturally. So that sauce that you find on the Chicago South Side is similar to Memphis style sauce, maybe a little spicier. Um, But they're barbecuing these rib tips and uh, hot links, coarsely chopped sausage is the combination that is typical with that now. 
Um, it's a little bit higher temperature, so there's some real char on the barbecue. They usually barbecue them at about 250 to 275, whereas, you know, if you're doing ribs or something like that, you're usually searching for a lower temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they're, and they're barbecued in an aquarium smoker, which is a big plexiglass structure where you can actually, if you're sitting at the front counter and you look over the counter, you can see them actually barbecuing the meat in this big plexiglass smoker. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that's that's Chicago style barbecue, rib tips, hot links. Uh, people don't on the north side a lot of times don't even know about it because they don't go to the south side or the west side. And something we're working to change for people to be aware of our own food culture here. That there's, you don't have to go to Memphis to get great barbecue. It's a great town to go to to get barbecue, but you can go to the south side and get really good barbecue too. And so, and cool. in, in St. Louis, they they barbecue pig snoots too. The the flap from the from the pig's nose. Which is a fascinating mm. thing. If you do it, if you do it right, it's almost like a chicharron. It becomes really crunchy and crispy from uh, a, a low and slow cook. I love that. And uh, they're commonly eaten as sandwiches on white bread, or you can get a rib tip and snoot combo. There is would be the St. Louis thing to do. <laughs> and you're right because that really does speak to this idea that like big boxed meat butchery, where you know animals were really sold as cuts industrially. Uh, at a wide scale. And like, it makes sense that you have these particular cuts that are, you know, they're not going to be boxed, they're not going to be shipped around. And so a local form of barbecue grows around those offcuts. Yeah, and it's another chapter in this story about, you know, the soul food canon or black, black food culture taking those cuts of meat that, you know, the, the richer classes didn't want, like the rib tips like the chitlins, like the snoots, but also like, you know, oxtails are like 12 bucks a pound now. They used to, they used to be practically free, you know, oxtails and short ribs and those types of things that you would find in the soul food can. And, you know, so I suppose we may be in danger of rib tips eventually getting the short rib treatment and becoming really expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go to another recipe in the book that is really important in your family. I mean, pies certainly are, I mean, in the Northeast, we love pies. In the South, we love pies. In the West, we love pies. But in particular for your family, the strawberry custard pie is important. Talk about that. To me, it's very much a strawberry season dish. Um, two reasons I like it. One is that the story is that that was how Grandma uh, Frances Hauser wooed Albert Farabach with her baking prowess. She would make him strawberry custard pie, and that was how she would get him to to come see her. <laughs> and, and eventually become her suitor, and they eventually got married. It's a very romantic story, but Aww. it was it was also like you know they had a, a, an old line uh, farm. They had a dairy cow, Swiss Brown, uh, which gave very rich cream. Grandpa was a tomato farmer; had about fifty acres of tomatoes. Back then, could raise a family with eleven kids. And then, you know, they had the big garden. So you go out and you pick strawberries. And people don't think about dairy as being seasonal because in American food, everything has been processed to ruthless consistency for the supermarket shelf. But when you're feeding animals on pasture, their milk changes throughout the year based on, you know, how much it's raining, um, Mm. how how warm (laughs) it is, how cold it is. Um, how much grass there is, how much sunshine there is. And so in, in June, when the strawberries are in season, you have these really, really rich cream because the animals are gr- gorging on this fresh rush of green growth with the spring rains and the days getting longer. And when you pour this cream, it's yellow from all of the beta carotene and 
vitamin A in it. And so it's really, really rich and it makes fantastic whipped cream or it makes fantastic custard. But it also has this flavor of like grass to it and hay because that's what they're eating. And strawberries, you know, they're called strawberries, I think because they're typically grown on beds of straw to protect them. But they also have a little bit of that green oh, cool. taste to them. And it's a a dish that's like really made for the season, like mid-May to mid-June. And uh, most Americans, we just don't cook that way anymore. I mean, we might get strawberries, but we don't think of, you know, we cook strawberries with cream because, or strawberries are good with cream because, you know, they're seasonal together in a way. Uh, whereas so interesting. Nowadays, if you go and get the cream in June, you know, a major label of cream, it's the same in June as it is in November. Right, sure. Whereas yeah. if, you ha- if you know a local farmer who does cream line cream, and you get it in July and you have that with, you know, fresh locally grown or garden strawberries. It's really a transformative flavor combination. It'll change how you think about something as simple as strawberries and cream. So I, I, I think that grandma knew exactly what she was doing in, in, <laughs> in, in going after grandpa's heart with that pie. <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, this has been super eye-opening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Francis. I had a good time talking to you. Paul Farabach is author of Midwestern Food, a chef's guide to the surprising history of a great American cuisine with more than 100 tasty recipes. You can find his recipe for Cincinnati-style chili, the Queen City Chili, on the website at splendidtable.org. For our next conversation, we go to the corner of McDougal and Houston Streets in the West Village of New York. Around the block from us is one of the city's hottest restaurants right now, a trotteria imported directly from Rome. And we recorded in another of the city's hottest restaurants, imported from the heartland of America. Hamburger America is burger scholar George Motz's ode to ground beef in a bun. He spent decades traveling the country and documenting hundreds of unique, hyper-regional styles of burgers, collecting their recipes and techniques, and he shows them off one at a time as specials on the menu here. But the two standby, always-on burgers are the classic Midwest smash burger and the Oklahoma onion burger. Have a listen. Hey, George. Hey, great to see you. Thank you so much for having us at your brand new restaurant, Hamburger America. It's on this like beautiful corner in Soho in Manhattan, and it looks like a 1955 place I would have seen in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Right. I mean, I would hope that it, it has a feeling of timelessness, not so much a year. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I, was, I like to say that there are places out there that try to be retro and nostalgic, but they only represent one tiny slice in time. Mm-hmm. And I think this should represent, I hope... Uh, something that's timeless that could be open today. It could have, you know, you could have walked into this in 1930 and it feels sort of timeless. Sure. Well, okay. Well, let's get to that idea of timelessness because you are a hamburger historian. Uh, Well, first you were prior to that, you were an award-winning cinematographer before you decided to devote your life to the hamburger. So what happened? What happened? What (laughs) what happened to you? Why'd you open a restaurant? Uh, it was it was completely by accident, actually. I made a documentary about hamburgers called Hamburger America yeah. 20 plus years ago. Yeah. I just did it for fun. I was trying to find something interesting to do while I was shooting, you know, basically kitty litter commercials. <laughs> <laughs> Award winning. Award winning. No, I was just, I was working very hard as a commercial director of photography uh, and traveling a lot. And I would travel and I would go to a location with a crew to film something at a hospital 
or something, and then I would end up saying, hey, guys, I'm going to go, and uh, I think I found a great hamburger spot in the next town over. I'm going to go check it out. Mm-hmm. I became obsessed with trying to document the American hamburger, and I made a film about it called Hamburger America. Yeah. But then, so, okay, so that's, a, that's the point of interest. But obviously, you know, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, you, you, you've spent a good chunk of your life now. Yeah. What is it about the hamburger... Certainly when you tell someone, hey, what is the most stereotypical American food? Like nine times out of ten, they're going to say the hamburger. And right. the other ten will say hot dog. Um, what is it about the hamburger? Why is it that iconic? Why has it assumed that sort of place in our imagination? I think everybody understands that hamburger is an American thing. It's, a, it's one of the most important pieces of culinary history in, in America. I think it really does have a place that is unique I think a lot of people think of the hot dog as being something that came from somewhere else or the pizza came from somewhere else. But the, even though the hamburger itself started out as an ethnic food in the United States, people still own it. I think they're very proud of that history, which is great. They should be proud of that history. We also popularized the hamburger faster than anybody else uh, in the world um, over 100 years ago. I think that really has a lot of pride connected to that. That's interesting. In some ways, that is a very American story, right? Like, obviously, yeah. you know, no one sitting at the table, as far as I know, is indigenous here. So, uh, so the idea is it always had to come from somewhere else. Even in the name, it's hamburger, right? Like it, right. The, I don't know if it's actually true, but the mythology is that it came from Hamburg, Germany. Or like it's this absolutely idea not mythology. It's true. Okay, great. <laughs> it's true. It did come from the – well, it was popularized through the port of Hamburg. We believe somewhere in the 1860s, 1870s. It was it was food that was consumed near the near the docks because you had to if you're looking for passage to the U.S. Hmm. Uh, or somewhere else in the world you had to leave out of the port of Hamburg and you had to eat cheaply because you had to wait for passage. Sometimes it would take a week, two weeks, two months, and you had to eat inexpensively. So you ate steak in the style of Hamburg, or actually it was called a frikadellen. If you go deep into the into the German name of it, uh, it was basically just it was chopped beef cooked somehow and served on a plate. Hmm. When it came to the U.S. It was still served on a plate, but at some point it made a jump, we believe, at state fairs, made the jump to um, bread, which made it a portable food. And then tell us how it went from there to like, the sort of ubiquitous popularity. Obviously, like fast food, and the, there's that whole story. But It was seen as a food that was for blue-collar workers, wage earners. They was, it was not seen as something that was clean. It was kind of a dirty food. Mm. It was also ethnic food. I mean, you think about any other ethnic food that exists today – you know, it has, usually has a hard time getting started in the U.S. You know, sure. I think of like, I use the example of the pupusa. You know, no one really knows what a pupusa is now, but I guarantee that, you know, who knows, 10, 20 years from now, everyone will know what a pupusa is. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> uh, taco is a perfect example. Taco is something that if people think that tacos are one of the greatest foods that have been given to us in, in the U.S. because it's clearly an ethnic food. The hamburger was the same thing, and, uh, it, but it took off because of its, I think, because of its portability. Portability was really the, mm. what caused the hamburger, I think, to become something very popular. But it was, also, it was also inexpensive, and it right. also tasted fantastic. I think it helps out that the very first condiment on a hamburger was likely onion. And onion and hamburger fat is, a, is an incredible flavor. Yeah. You refer to yourself as a, you know, I'll, sometimes you refer to as a hamburger historian. When you and I were talking the other day, you, you, you sort of demurred a little bit. And you said, I'm, I'm more like a vessel for the story of the American hamburger. Right. Why is the preservation of that story so important to you? And like, what does it tell us about ourselves? Well, well, first of all, the hamburger has been translated so many different ways in the U.S., and spe- right. especially recently with the rise of social media and you know, Instagram and photos. Everyone's trying to do something that's crazy and different. But the reality is that you know, there's no one really out there, I think other than myself right now, who's really trying to keep it simple and trying to make sure that they're appreciating where we came from. 
Uh, but with the hamburger, I believe I'm truly a, just a steward to history. My job is to be a vessel <laughs> for all that hamburger information to make sure people are getting it right. You know, there's, it's, and there's, there's the, the nuance of is it the right bun? Is it the right beef? You know, how is the beef ground? What surface are you cooking on? How are you eating it? Where are you eating it? All the condiments. These are all very important things to make sure you're getting it right. Okay, but here's like sort of the philosophical question. Something as ubiquitous as the hamburger, and like it's important because it's ubiquitous, and something as endlessly riffable as the hamburger, and to your point, something that had already evolved because originally it was served on a plate, then it became served on a bun. Like, what? How do you define right? What does right mean in that in the context? That's of the a good it? question. You know, I think there's well documented burgers in, in in American history that have been served, who knows, tens of thousands of times over the last couple of weeks alone yeah. <laughs> in certain, certain places in America, to me, that's, that's what you're trying to get right. Okay. If they're only using a certain type of cheese, and they've only ever used that type of cheese, if you try to make it with a different type of cheese, you've lost the point. <laughs> you have to make that burger the way they've always made it, whether they made it you know, 500 times at lunch, or they've made millions of them over the last 100 years. There's, I believe that there's there's a reason people go to restaurants to eat hamburgers, especially some of the old school ones who have been doing it the same way for so many years. People go there because it's consistent. Yeah. And then those consistently great burgers that exist in history and they've been do- well documented, regional hamburgers around the U.S. or just places that have been making the same simple burger for over 100 years, those are the ones that need to be studied and considered and, you know, and focused on to make sure you get, get it right. Yeah. That's the get it right part. Okay. So you're not talking about, oh, there is some platonic ideal of the hamburger that like George Motes knows, and he's going to come around and be like, you did it right, you did it wrong. You're talking about very specific burgers you have come across in your travels, in your research, and preserving those particular burgers. Exactly. So what are some of those burgers? Oh, wow. I mean, there's, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. I mean, thousands. Who knows? I mean, there's so many of them. See, to me, the original burger in America is everywhere. It's just, it, it, people will be surprised at how many different types of historically significant regional variations there are on the hamburger in America. It's, it's truly fascinating to me. And I spent obviously the last 20 plus years studying and researching and trying to find those regional hamburger foodways. Yeah. And I feel like every day somebody sends me a DM or a text saying like, oh, hey, you should try this, this, this crazy burger. It's got this on it and that on it. And it's been making it for 100 years. I didn't know about it. I've, it's, it's, a, it's an evolving process. Perfect example uh, is a place called Louis Lunch in New Haven. Louis Lunch is the oldest continually operating hamburger restaurant in America. Okay. At 123. They've actually been making hamburgers now for 123 years. Continuously. They've never closed. That's incredible. <laughs> uh, and they make a burger a very specific way. If you try to recreate their burger and you don't make it that way, you got it wrong. And it's so simple. It's, just, it's actually very lean beef that is cooked in an upright broiler with flames hitting it left and right. Huh. And it's, it's served on toast because their burger exists before the bun was invented. <laughs> so it, in the context of history, it's a perfect example that if that burger was served on a bun, it wouldn't be correct. We'll be back with more from George Motes at his restaurant, Hamburger America. And we're going to taste those burgers, you know, for science. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking about hamburgers with the greatest burger lover I've ever known, burger scholar and now restaurateur, George Motes. Let's get back to it with him. So I love that you have this encyclopedic knowledge of all these different unique hamburger places around America. You have now a restaurant that is dedicated to them, and you have exactly 
two hamburgers on the menu. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and one has your name on it. It's the George Moats fried onion burger. That and you have a, a, a cla- what do you call it? a classic smash burger. Why are these the two iconic burgers you serve on the menu? I felt that these were the two burgers that people need to, to try to get a, a, like a, at least the basis for uh, their own personal hamburger knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> these are the simple ones that were going to drive the point home. Okay. I didn't want to do anything wild. And there are wild burgers out there that have been around for 100 years. I just wanted to keep it very simple and make sure people appreciate just the basics first. You know, okay. just, just get down the basics, and then we'll, we'll go beyond that, which we are. This is, that's a different story. We are starting a, what I call my Hamburger Heroes program. We're adding a third burger to the menu once a month where I bring in one of my Hamburger Heroes. From You can see the pictures all over the restaurant. Um, they'll be here to introduce me you know, or to introduce the New York City to their burger they've been making for decades, and then I will keep it on the menu for the month. Okay. So tell us about some of these hamburger heroes. Uh, perfect example, uh, we're going to bring in Autumn Weston from Weston's QP in Lansing, Michigan, and she's bringing with her uh, one of the most iconic regional burgers in America, the Olive Burger. And if you're in Detroit, no one knows what an Olive Burger is. You know, it's so funny. Reason, it's I weird. literally went to the University of Michigan, which is, yeah. you know... An hour and change away in Ann Arbor, and I have never heard of the Olive. Burger. Oh, Ann Arbor! So you wouldn't know it in Ann Arbor, but if you went over to Jackson, a few towns over, there's a place that sells an Olive Burger. There, it's pretty much central and western Michigan where the Olive Burger exists, but it is one of the most beloved burgers um, in the state. And so what makes the Olive Burger the Olive Burger? It's simply a burger patty mm-hmm. with a, on, a, on a toasted bun with an olive sauce on it. And the olive sauce is made of chopped green olives, mayonnaise, a little bit of olive brine, and that's it. Oh, some sugar, too, depending on where. If you're Cubies, I think it's a little bit of, a little touch of sugar and a little sweetness. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Who's another hamburger hero coming? There's so many. I mean, we're also going to bring in John and Bonnie Ecker from the Santa Fe Bite in Santa Fe, and they have, they've been making... Uh, the green chili cheeseburger forever. And that'll be, that'll stick around for a while, possibly beyond a month. <laughs> Everyone loves a green chili cheeseburger. <laughs> Tell us about the green chili cheeseburger. Green chili cheeseburger is very simple. It's nothing more than stewed New Mexican green chilies. It has to be local New Mexican, uh-huh. um, chopped up and put on a burger. It actually hides underneath the cheese and there's nothing else to it. It's just, it's, a, it's I don't know if you've ever had a, you know, people had a green chili, they understand the power of it. Um, they're not too spicy, but they have a sort of a deep heat to them. They're not like, yeah. they're not a, I would say like a jalapeno has like a, it's like a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. And uh, green chili is kind of like a, mm, like a punch in the gut. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a low burn, you know? Ooh, and it's, you know, it does it tickle the endorphins and get you going. But on a burger, it makes it, uh, it makes it very special. Yeah. Okay, so should we taste a couple of burgers? Let's do it. So then we got up for a moment as George went over to make these burgers. And then we got back to the table to give him a taste. All right, Mr. Motes, what do we got here? So the two burgers on the menu, the classic smash and the Oklahoma or the George Motes fried onion burger. I say Oklahoma because, again, these are not things that I made up. Sure. These, these are based on hamburger history. These are, these are Historical burgers. Historical documents. Exactly. You can yeah. buy these burgers uh, in many places in the U.S., for sure. Um, and people somehow have a hard time dialing in everything back and considering this to be a burger. It's also not, a, not a really a, I wouldn't call it a pretty burger. People are so used to now the, you know, these stacks of patties and gooey melting cheese. This is kind of a kind of an odd looking flat thing, yeah. and <laughs> it takes a special eye to to appreciate. It. And you really have to appreciate it, you know, with your mouth, not your eye. <laughs> it is it is a beautiful and homely thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So where should we start? Which should I try the 
the but you really onion should, burger first? No, you really should start burger? with the classic smash, which okay. predates the onion burger. You can have some of this? That's up for you. Oh, God. I've, I've had many of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> many, many, many. Okay. Talk me through this. As so I'm... this burger has on it mustard pickle onion, which is pretty classic in the Midwest. And it's basic, right? Mustard pickle onion. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the first three condiments that were out there for hamburgers. And you, you can go to many places in the Midwest and some places outside the Midwest and get a classic smash burger. It's also the grease. I consider grease to be a condiment. So there's your <laughs> <laughs> grease is a condiment plus the mustard, the pickle, and the onion. And those three elements do certain things to the burger to make it come alive in a way. You can have a classic burger with just nothing on it but cheese, which is fine, or even not even cheese. And you have the elements you need to make a burger. You also have the definition of a burger, by the way, which is important. He can't stop eating, by the way. You see, this, you see what's going on here? I'm like, keep talking, keep talking. <laughs> keep it going. What to was me, the definition of the burger? Definition of burger is only one thing. It is chopped beef, cooked somehow, and served on bread. That's mm-hmm. it. And then wherever you go from there is up to the, obviously, the, you know, the, the inventive ones or the ones who are trying to, re- I'm trying to recreate regional burgers. I then have to figure out how do you add to that definition? <laughs> but the definition is simply chopped beef cooked somehow. Oh, hang on. Wait for This is ladder five, by the way. No, no, it wasn't. It was 24. Engine 24. We have, we have uh, two houses over here. They, they like my burgers. <laughs> I'm sure they like to see you. <laughs> and they also get a discount, by the way. You walk in with a, with a uniform, you get an immediate discount. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry. Okay, so... The condiments I totally get. Like that little bit of raw onion gives it like crispness, a little crunch. You have the mustard, which obviously adds mustard flavor, the cheese, the pickles. The smash burger, though. The point of this, it's literally called a smash burger because I saw you put a ball of beef on the grill and you carefully smash it down. So you basically spread it as far as, far as wide as it can go. Right. So it's mostly crust. You have that beautiful brown, dark crust. I love a thin burger yeah. because I feel like, oh, a thin burger is a sandwich. It's like, oh, it's a combination of different things versus like, oh, if you want to eat a thick hamburger, like you just kind of want to eat a piece of beef and, yeah. you know, but a thin burger is more of a composition. Both of the burgers on your menu are these like thin smash style burgers. Yeah. Why? Like what's, why that and not a thick burger? Again, simply because I'm a steward to history and this is a historically significant uh, method for cooking burgers that goes back to not for flavor or for... You know, to, to wow people with, wow, look at you, mate, you smashed a burger, just for speed. Mm. And back in the, okay. the beginning of the hamburger, they smashed balls of beef uh, for speed. The hamburger started out as a ball that was portioned. And a, a hamburger chef or cook, hamburger cook, at that, not a chef at all, hamburger cook would have to somehow figure out a way to make a consistently sized burger. And they would start with balls of beef because mm-hmm. uh, that would be the way to consistently make the, the burger the right size. Sure, sure. Then they would take these balls and throw them into a into probably a low t- a tank or like a like an oversized skillet, and they would smash or they'd press these balls of beef into flat patties to cook faster. Don't forget also the smash burger technique predates preformed patties mm, okay. by sure. by fifty sixty years. Okay, I mean they were, there were no preformed patties or frozen patties until the nineteen thirties. Uh, but we're going back to the you go back to the to the eighteen eighties when they were smashing little balls of beef in skillets at state fairs or whatever. And it was just done for speed. They realized if a thick burger takes 10 minutes to cook and a smash burger takes two, why am I spending that extra eight minutes? Yeah. <laughs> I could be feeding people. And it really actually started, um, uh, I believe it started when people were trying to find ways to feed workers outside of factories. 
They would come out of factories and eat, and they had to, they had a very very specific amount of time that they had to eat. So they decided to obviously smash patties so they could make them faster and faster and faster. It's based on just on history and method. So you mean they weren't thinking 150 years ago? Well, hey, in 150 years, some guys gonna be talking on the radio talking about how the smash burger is really yeah. a great composition of different elements that all come together. They weren't talking about <laughs> my, they weren't talking about Maillard reaction outside these factories. That's for sure. That that much we know. The beautiful browning you get yeah. from smashing it. Okay, so that's a smash burger. That's the story I have left. You do <laughs> two microns of this burger, and I I didn't mean to eat the entire thing while you talk. Okay. People like that burger a lot. It's a classic. Now, unfortunately for you, this is going to be better than that one, I think. I mean, just slightly so. Because okay. this, this is a very classic, simple burger. This burger, and the reason I have it on the menu is this because... This is the, the George Motes fried onion burger, right. a.k.a. an Oklahoma onion burger. There you go. Thanks for clarifying that. That's very important because it is based on the method that was invented 100 and, 101 years ago in El Reno, Oklahoma, where... At some point, it's not known as a Depression-era burger. People like to call it the Depression-era burger. It's not, it has nothing to do with the Depression at all. 1922 predates the Depression. Um, this burger was, was invented oh by... I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're the same thing, but totally not the same thing. Totally not the same thing, yeah. Talk, talk, talk. So, cause he, talk because he wants <laughs> to eat. <laughs> so, in 1922, there was a very, a very famous railroad strike called the Work Shopman Strike. And it affected the town of El Reno immensely because uh, just about every single resident of the town of El Reno, Oklahoma, worked for the railroad. So everybody was out of work. The entire town was out of work, except the guys who were making hamburgers. So they found that people couldn't afford burgers. And they couldn't even afford to buy burger meat themselves. So to extend, extend the, uh, the amount of beef they had for the day, they would put in literally 50% of the beef would be thin-sliced onion. And they ended up with this, this incredible science experiment, which... People don't do today because it's just, it takes too long or they don't understand the method. Um, I, think, I think I may have helped to popularize, repopularize this around the world. I'm seeing this burger pop up, and they credit me in Argentina, in Japan, in Sweden. It's kind of amazing. So how do you find these burgers? I mean, they're, they're sort of ubiquitous, but you also have to really look for them because really what's ubiquitous is, you know, whatever you pulled off on the side of the, on the highway for, and it's probably some big chain. You know, in the beginning, it was very difficult because I started doing research before the internet. <laughs> it's just hard to imagine. Before <laughs> cell phones, even before GPS. My own personal history is ancient. I, mean, I was dealing with maps, like Rand McNally maps in the car and getting very lost, and I had no idea what I was doing. But now it's very easy because I have a legion of uh, they're sort of hamburger fanatics uh, that I call my EBTs, my expert burger tasters, and I have them in every city and region in America, and they are the ones that go in first. They're what I call my first responders to great hamburger discoveries. And you know who you are, and I love you all, and they do understand what I'm doing. They, get the, they understand my mission. And they, they can go in and say, George, you'd love this burger. I just found this place that's been around for 75 years. They've been cooking burgers and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then those are the ones I go check out. That's how I find them now. It's kind of fascinating. And usually 90% of the time, they're dead right. <laughs> that's awesome. And, okay, so when you're cooking a burger, obviously we just talked about how, oh, the whole point of the project is to find all these different methods that people use, some little quirk that they have along the way. If I'm just cooking a burger at home, what is your like number one piece of advice to like make it a great burger? To keep it simple, 
That's number one. Uh, I tell people that, you know, the, the hardest thing to do is to think of a burger, cooking a burger inside on a, on a stovetop. It's actually the best way. That's the original American method mm. was cooked in a, in a skillet. Yeah, not in a, a backyard uh, grill. Not in a backyard grill. Backyard, that's actually the hardest way to make a burger is to go into the backyard and start up a fire. A flame could be 400 degrees or 1,000 degrees, and you don't know. Yeah, it's really hard mm, to manage. Yeah, sure. It's hard to manage a flame. Even in a propane grill, it's hard to manage a flame. Sometimes you can't get the flame hot enough. Hang on. There you go. Get, wow. Back at it again. Oh, that's fine. There you go. There you go. Um, cooking at home, simple is the best way to go. Keeping it simple means not too many condiments. Mm-hmm. You know, toast your bun. Probably pretty important, unless you're making a fried onion burger. <laughs> but to keep it simple, don't add too many ingredients, and just have a good time with it. And also, think of history. Think of think of you know historically what would have fit in your mouth. You know these big burgers you see on Instagram. A lot of them don't fit in your mouth. Sure, and they probably don't taste good either. Um, you have to think about what would really taste good and what would fit in your mouth. Okay, so when you made this, the two burgers started out the same. Right? It was two balls of beef on the griddle. Yeah. With this one, the onion burger, you then took a whole handful of super thin sliced white onion, put it on top of the, of the beef patty, yeah. and just kind of let it hang out there for a minute. And then when you smash it down, you, sm- you basically smash them down together. Yeah. And they both kind of hung out on the, grill, on the griddle together. Pure science. <laughs> I mean, it is. There's no other way to describe it. So the onion cooks in the burger fat. The exactly. onion is steaming also the burger, right, at the same time, right, the moisture in the onion. Yeah. I also saw you do something special with the bun. Right. You didn't really toast the bun. You put the bun on top of the burger. Yeah. What I call letting it ride. Let, let the bun ride on top of the flipped patty. Once you have a flipped patty, you put the bun on top. But this method goes back way before me, obviously. Again, it's, you know, it's part of hamburger history. You can find this at, at, um, at uh, White Castle. White Castle today still puts their buns on top of their patties to steam those buns. And this bun is so yeah, squishy and soft, and it, it's like, it's kind of amazing. It's, it's part of the science project. It has to be. It's, it's, if, you, if you try to add a bun after you've already cooked this patty, it doesn't taste the same. Uh, if you don't smash it down, it doesn't taste the same. If you don't cook your, if you don't, if you don't cook your onions into the patty to co-mingle with the salt that's on the patty and the beef tallow, it's not going to ever taste the same. You have to adhere to those few, very few techniques and methods to make that magic happen. And I truly believe it's magic. I, I, this is a true story. And it's, I'm not that anything else is false. When I go on the griddle and I make these burgers, I look down at the griddle, and I think to myself, I need, I need one again. I, <laughs> When, when do I get to have my next one? I wish I could eat that burger. I really, honestly, truly believe that I could eat every burger I cook. Well, this, this is genuinely worth saving. <laughs> Thank you so much, George. My pleasure. George Motes is the author of The Great American Burger Book and now is chief burger flipper at his restaurant in New York City, Hamburger America. And that is our show for the week. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Joanne Griffith, and Alex Schaffer. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendor Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made each week by technical producer Jennifer Lupke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your downloads, and take a moment to leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. APM Studios.